The following audio is from the Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. Good morning, everybody. Hey, glad you're here. Uh, sorry, I just closed the video. But uh, anyway, hey, real quick, I want to give a shout out to our worship crew. Uh, they do such a great job. So would you just give them a hand real quick? Appreciate what they do every Sunday, four times. They're always the first ones here. And I, I will say sometimes, like, hey, I got a guitar. You want me to play? And they're like, yeah, maybe next week. So, you know, maybe someday. But uh, anyway, hey, I also want to just remind you that uh, tomorrow... We break ground on the new facility, so come on, that's a big deal. Uh, we've been, for some of you, like we've been working on this for 11 years and we're finally there, so tomorrow's a big day. You'll see some things on the socials. We'll celebrate next Sunday a little bit too. Um, and then finally, if you're not signed up for the barbecue this afternoon, baptism and barbecue, we're gonna have a great time. Love for you to join us, it's gonna be fun. Two o'clock over in Lake Stevens, not at Lake Stevens. In Lake Stevens, there's an address um, at the hub there. You can grab a little card if you need it and look it up on your smartphone. Um, before we jump into our uh, off the rails, which we're taking the seven churches of Revelation, walking through each church and how they were warned to not get off the rails and ruin the church. Uh, I wanna give a, a shout out, you don't know this individual, but a guy named Eric Geiger, he's a pastor. Um, and and uh, I just wanna say thanks to him, not that he'll hear this, but just that a lot of the content today uh, was helpful based on some messages he put together a while back. Um, and so we're going to jump in. Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going to land looking at verses 18 through 29. Um, that's kind of the core text for the church, but we'll be, re we'll be referring to other spots in Scripture. So if you're taking notes, which I encourage you to do, uh, you'll be writing out some other verses as well. Let's read. I'll pray, and then we'll go through the, the content. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, uh, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches hearts and minds uh, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations, the one who will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches." Jesus, today I pray for, God, your spirit to work in, in this place, in all of us, people today maybe that are new. This is a pretty different Sunday, but I pray for your spirit to work in, in everybody that's new, newer. Also, God, for some of us that have been here a while, it's a conversation we need it to have, and I just pray for your presence uh, to go before me, even as I speak in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So we take on this church, and, and like I said, these are the seven churches of Revelation in Revelation 1, 2, and 3. And uh, this one is Thyatira. It opens up by saying, uh, these are the words of the Son of God. Now, this is the first time that we don't receive kind of an idea of who Jesus is. We receive directly the identity because Jesus is referred to as the Son of God in the Gospels as well, and we know it's Jesus. It says, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. The thing you need to know and why it's important to get the opening is because what it's saying here in, sim in symbolism is this is impending judgment because you've gone down a path that is destructive. So they're off the rails. This is not a church that's being warned to not go off the rails. This is a church that is off the rails and things are really bad. And so Jesus says, based on what's going on, judgment is looming. It's here, be warned. And so that's why you hear eyes like blazing fire, the seriousness of it, and feet like burnished bronze, again, symbolically from the Old Testament, judgment is impending. And it starts out with a compliment. It says, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance, and that you're doing now more, doing more now than you were at first. And really for all of us, when you think about the idea of faith in Christ and what it means to grow in maturity, what you want to see is growing in love. What you want to see is growing in faith, having the spirit of perseverance, you know, having, you know, these things that, that specifically are virtues that need to be part of our lives as followers of Jesus. These are good things. But nevertheless, within the church and really within each of us, there are things that the Holy Spirit would say, look at you're growing, look, these things are good, look, I'm proud of you, way to go, you're doing this well. However, and this would go back to a couple messages ago when we talked about a spirit of repentance or repentance as a regular discipline, there's something about our lives in Jesus, that as we're walking them out, we miss it in certain ways. And so while on one hand we can go, wow, my faith is growing. Wow, I'm growing in love. My deeds are better than they used to be. There's more virtues, less vices. There's always areas where God is shaping and wanting to remind us by his spirit that there's work to do. And that's where we find the, the church at Thyatira. They're getting certain things right, and that's a good thing. But then we have this word, nevertheless, which means we're about to take a turn in the conversation. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. Jesus says directly to this church, here's some things that are good, but you have this woman, Jezebel. Now, we don't know within the church at Thyatira if this title is symbolic because if you go back to 1 Kings 18, you hear about King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, and Jezebel had no fear of God. Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord. Jezebel had this wicked, rebellious spirit. We don't know if the idea is symbolic of that Jezebel or if this woman's name was specifically Jezebel and she called herself a prophet. All we know is there's this woman operating in wicked ways, and here's the problem. The church didn't discern it correctly, they tolerated it, which is why, again, they're not getting off the rails, they're off the rails. It says you tolerate this woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. And you go, well, what is it that she's doing? And here's the specifics. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. 
And I want to talk about this. This is where we're going to hang our hats today. And I know it says on your way in, if you saw it, PG-13. And I don't say that lightly or that's like some kind of funny thing. Today is PG-13. The content we're going to tackle is something we're not going to avoid simply because it's uncomfortable and because the church honestly hasn't done a good job at having this conversation. So I mentioned a couple of Sundays ago, there's a message coming up. Bring your seatbelts. You're going to want to buckle them. Here we go. Okay, so here we go. We jump in and it says idolatry and just simply defined idolatry is to prioritize anything above our faith in the Lord. There are certain things in areas of compromise, certain things that are even virtuous, that when we're given to them too much so, what we're doing is we're prioritizing those things above our faith in the Lord. That's the simple definition of idolatry. But then he says, and sexual immorality. And I want to jump in today and, and mention this because often the pull of our identity when driven by our sexuality is, is that the passions make room for our own sexual expression apart from the guardrails God has provided us. And like I said, today is very much PG-13. This is where we dive in into a conversation that we need to have. And yes, it's about human sexuality. It's vital because it's so easy to fall into the traps of our culture, just like the church at Thyatira was falling into the traps of this prophetess that was misleading the church into things that were not healthy. In the same way today, we see that in our culture. Now, let me, let me take a pause for a second and make sure I mention this. This comes from a heart of love. Because one of the things that, that when Jesus was, you know, teaching the crowds and the disciples, somebody in the crowd says, hey, sum up everything or sum up the Old Testament or what's the greatest commandment. And what does Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those two are not separate. Those two are the same thing. We love God and we love people, period. So, we need to love those around us. And while it's people in this room or people within our neighborhoods or workplaces or families or whatever, we're called to love them well. At the same time, it's important to understand because our culture whitewashes what love is. Love is not simply a sentimental feeling or the nice warm fuzzies that are always benevolent and comfortable. Sometimes we, we need to understand we love one another enough to tell each other the truth. And we've got to make sure we understand that because truth matters. If I love my children the way I'm called to love my children, if they're getting off the rails in their lives, I have to pull them in and have a conversation and let them know there's consequences for where they're getting off the rails because they're not doing what I'm asking them to do because I have their best in mind. In the same way, when it comes to love, the right kind, it means we operate in grace, but we also operate in truth. And those two go together. So what I want and my heart behind this message really is, and it's going to be two parts, by the way, uh, is that it helps us understand the theology of God's design and sexuality. It helps us understand and process, reflect, and for some to reconsider what our sexuality is all about. Because again, in our culture, there's all kinds of ways that we're told it's okay. And the Bible has something else to say. So, so as we jump in, there's a cultural view and there's a scriptural view. Let me kind of get into the cultural view. 
in our culture, we learn these phrases that for those that are the younger generations, you're more familiar with these phrases and they don't even seem out of place. For those that are a bit older on the spectrum, and I'm probably on the upper end, 47, moving into 50s and whatever beyond that, 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 that maybe I, I'm not as familiar. But if you're younger, some of this feels completely normal. And yet I would challenge you, it's not necessarily commonplace culturally uh, over decades and, and, and even centuries. But it's this, I am self-actualizing. I am self-made. My own self-expression and my own self-fulfillment is where I find happiness. That's what our culture says. Now, it's important to understand, well, where does that come from? If you're taking notes, write down Alex de Tocqueville. You're like, how do you spell that? I don't know. Figure it out. Google it. I have it on my notes. Anyway, I'm not going to spell it for you. Alex de Tocqueville was a philosopher, a writer, a historian, and a scientist from the 1830s. So we're going back almost 200 years, and, and he's a French individual that was looking at American society and studying what, their, what American society was about. And he wrote something, he wrote a lot of things, but one of the things he wrote is this, it's an amazing society, America, but it has a major flaw called individualism. We're going back 200 years individualism. He basically says he's deeply concerned in the 1830s, he's deeply concerned that people would stop living through the lens of one another and community and start living only for self, that they would fall headlong into self-centeredness leading to self-expression and concern for self above all else. And then the challenge of this, essentially what we're talking about is self-worship. And that's really where we find ourselves today. This is about me, myself, and I. And I'm not here to tell you that, that you're not a unique individual and that each of us was created uniquely. Go back and read Psalm 139. We were knit together in our mother's womb. God knows our days, all these things about us. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We're unique. We each have intricacies that make us us. And that's beautiful and wonderful. But, but when you take that idea and attach to it, I live for me and individualism is my priority. What you get is decisions based on how I feel, not necessarily based on what is true and not necessarily based on those around me and how they're impacted by who I'm becoming. So it's an important conversation. Alex de Tocqueville, 1830s. In the 1980s, a group of professors got together and began to study Alex de Tocqueville and all the things that he had to say about this. And they wrote a book called Habits of the Heart. And in this book, they began to conclude that individualism and personal happiness had exponentially increased. And they coined the phrase expressive individualism. And for some of you that lived through the 80s and remember the 80s and the hair bands and all the other stuff... 19, the 1980s were really called the decade of decadence. I enjoy, I indulge, I do what I want. This is about me. And there's all kinds of implications to what that's about then that leads into now the 2020s that we're living through currently. But, but they said, you know, expressive individualism is the, coin, the term they coined. And you may not know this, but the book and its mantras you've heard. The idea of my truth versus your truth. Find yourself, express yourself. Well, what does that have to do with today? Let me, let me try to say this briefly, and I know there's a lot to this message. What it has to do with today is this. There are some people that would say, I don't want to get married because marriage squelches my ability to be me, and my spouse won't allow me that, so I'm not going to do that. I've got to find myself in singleness, and that's my identity. 
other people would say, I've got to get married because when I get married, that person completes me. Y'all seen Jerry Maguire and the American theology of like, you had me at hello and you complete me and that kind of stuff. It sounds good in vows in a ceremony, but it isn't true. And yet our culture would lead us to even buy in to that idea. What does this have to do with today when it comes to, again, our sexuality? Gender dysphoria is essentially, I feel out of place in my body, so I must need to change who I am so somehow that matches what I feel on the inside. And by the way, next week, we're going to talk a lot more about that. The sexual revolution that, again, some of you lived through in the 1960s and 70s, free love. I can do what I want with who I want when I want. Want and that's perpetuated even more so today with apps like Tinder and all these other options to go find somebody and do whatever. And, and that's kind of the sexual revolution idea from the 60s and 70s. Pornography is another example. I, I don't need other people. I, 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 can, I can think about, I can dwell on, I don't need anyone else. I can fantasize and I can fulfill myself. Who needs the vulnerability of other people? I sure don't. There's pornography. You have sex and sexuality as a God. And you might not really see it that way or understand it that way, but our culture worships physical beauty and attraction and sexuality. Maybe not like any other culture in the history of the world, although that's probably debatable. But what happens when we do that is we think that somehow it will help with some level of emptiness, with some level of pain, with some level of wound or, or, or something that will fulfill me. And in the end, for some of you that have been on those exploits and attempted to do that and find happiness, what you realize is it doesn't work. If anything, it simply medicates the symptoms of the wound or the emptiness. Another problem, again, in the cultural view, but another problem is really what the church has done. And the church has not done a great job historically in having these conversations. And I said, I mean, we put PG-13, and that happens rarely here, but we're not going to avoid this conversation because it's uncomfortable. We're not going to skip it because somehow it feels weird to sit in church and hear this from some guy on a stage. I get it, but we're not going to avoid it because it is essential to who each of us is becoming and the implications of it. So here we are having this conversation and the church has done a great job of painting sex as gross or it's only procreation in certain groups. They believe that or, or you know, somehow it's, it's about shame. If you're, if you're not in the context of marriage, then you feel shamed. You're going to get STDs or your girlfriend's going to get pregnant or whatever else. And it doesn't come from the right kind of picture. So the church hasn't done a great job of explaining what God has designed when it comes to our sexuality and sexual intimacy. And then there's, there's my own story. And, and I don't, again, you, we're all uncomfortable, so let's just keep diving in here. But I, I, didn't, I didn't grow up in church world. And I was eight years old when I remember being at my friend's house and his dad had a stack of magazines in a cabinet, and you can imagine where that led. At eight years old, and year after year after year, I, I, again, uncomfortable, but having been sexually abused twice as a kid growing up, not growing up in church world and having all kinds of things about my own sexuality, I didn't understand, I misunderstood, and I felt ashamed about until I came to Christ at going on 17, and, and I can stand up here and tell you there's hope. I can stand up here and tell you there's healing. There's deliverance. I don't have to live in the pattern of what was or in the guilt or the shame or whatever else of what was. God has redeemed my heart, my life, and, and honestly, 24 years this month of marriage, I have a great marriage to my best friend. So I want to tell you there's hope in this whole conversation. 
But it is essential to understand God's biblical guardrails, God's biblical design for marriage because in our culture, for sexuality, excuse me, because in our culture, it's understood a million different ways that are not healthy and are not true. So the scriptural view, let, let's get there. And we're going to land in 1 Corinthians 6 for a length of time today. That's going to, I know we talked about Revelation and Thyatira. We'll come back to it later. Uh, another day, but um, the scriptural view when it comes to sexuality, God does not present sex as shameful, but as a beautiful gift from him for us. And, and the reason Corinthians is important is because the church at Corinth, and if you read your Bible, there's 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. They're both rather lengthy, but Corinth was the party church. Of all the churches in the, in the Bible, you have you know, the churches in Galatia and Ephesus and Thessalonica and Rome and all this stuff. And, and, and Paul bring, writes these letters and brings certain correction things. The church at Corinth was a party church. They were the ones like, hey, let's take communion. And half the people are getting drunk and half the people don't get anything. And they say, whoa, that's not okay. You know, there's people, they're, they're gathering together for feasts, but they don't have the kind of care and concern for one another to go, oh, I've got four helpings. Instead of gorging myself and, and not sharing like they were doing, let me, let me give you some, but they weren't doing that. And so Paul has all kinds of corrections on top of the culture in a large city like Corinth was temples throughout the city with idol worship. Again, going back to this idea of the church of Thyatira, these temples where groups would gather and they would invite the church. Hey guys, there's a thing happening over at this temple. Why don't you join us? And some of them would join. And Paul would go, that's not okay. Idolatry that included sexual immorality at the temple is not okay for us. Another individual was going, hey, guys, guess what? I have a, a wife and she's pretty great, but so is her mom. And Paul's like, not cool. That's not good. That's not healthy. There was group sex going on. There were things that Paul, there was, there was uh, bisexuality and homosexuality that Paul is addressing going, these things are not God's design for your sexuality. This is why the church at Corinth is the perfect church to pick for this conversation. 1 Corinthians 6, uh, starting in verse 9. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men or homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, slanders, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So Paul jumping into this conversation in 1 Corinthians 6 says, there's things going on within the city of Corinth that don't apply to you, and that stuff is destroying you. And he brings up a couple of different contexts that I read already um, about sexual immorality. And then he gets specific about the idolatry and adultery, about homosexuality. And, and then he talks about there's other issues too. There's people that want to steal. There's people that live greedy. There's people that are constantly getting drunk. There's people that are slandering and swindling others. None of these things are good. But what he's going to do in the next bunch of verses is circle back to the issue of sexual immorality. And, and, and Paul, remember here, is not talking to the city of Corinth as a whole city. He's talking to the church within 
the city. In the same way, as we sit in this room together, we, we sit and we call ourselves the church. We, as people, are the church. This conversation is about what God has designed in the context of who we are through the lens of our faith in Christ. The community, our city, those around us that aren't part of church world, they have all kinds of ideas and beliefs and whatever. It, it is what it is. This conversation is for us. So we're talking about sexuality in the context of our faith in Christ. Now, Paul, in a moment here, anticipates where they're going to go with this. And so he talks about the issues going on. He circles back to some of the sexuality and their response. Paul says, you're about to say, I have the right to do anything. And Paul's response is, but not everything's beneficial. You, you, you say you have the right to do anything. And he says again, but I will not be mastered by anything. What Paul is reminding us of is not everything is good for us. We can, we can be forgiven of it, and they would talk about God's grace being enough to forgive us, and so if we're going to do that, God still forgives us. And Paul says, yeah, but it's not helping you. It's not beneficial to who you're supposed to be becoming. And then he continues, well, let me say this. It's like fire. Anybody have a fire pit in your backyard? I have a fire pit in my backyard. Some of you, I love going out there and we need to do s'mores and we'll just sit by the fire and the sun's going down, mosquitoes are coming out. You're trying to relax and swat and fly, whatever. Anyway, but, but fire in that context is great. But if I take a torch today and I drive out towards Mount Pilchuck and just start swinging it out in the woods, right? I mean, you saw the sunrise this morning, maybe, and you noticed it was, you know, tinged with smoke. Fire in the right context is great, but fire out of bounds destroys in the same way our sexuality in the right context is great, but out of bounds, it destroys. So, so when, when Paul says you're, you're saying, I have the right to do anything, another thing to understand culturally in Paul's day is that there were philosophers that came along, and you might remember, you might recognize a couple of these names, Aristotle and Plato, about the same era of time, you know, BC, about 300. But what they believed as philosophers continued to be an issue within, you know, kind of this Roman Empire and Greek culture that was all mixed together. And, and they had a low view of humanity. These philosophers believed kind of like in Hinduism and in India, a caste system, where if you're born into the higher levels, you're great and everybody worships you. And the lower levels, like it doesn't care if you exist. And if you starve or whatever happens, happens. That's the way that goes. These philosophers had this cultural idea that, that, again, was part of the Corinthian culture, a low view of humanity, a low view of our physical bodies. And so they even would believe that if you were born in, into poverty or even as a slave, you're just a tool for the empire, and it is what it is, and whatever happens, happens. And so, so Paul, in dealing with this, says, do anything? Absolutely not. And then he jumps into, you say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Their excuse, hey, if I'm hungry, I eat. If I have a sexual urge, I go with it, whatever it might be. Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not to understand it correctly. That's a low view of humanity, a low view of, of, of you know, this eternal God out there, but also a low view of your own body. And so watch what Paul does. Paul says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So again, in Corinth, and even today, if I'm hungry, I eat. If I have an urge sexually, I do whatever I want to do. Big whoop-de-doo. And Paul says, come on, we're better than that. God is better than that and thinks higher of you than that. 
And then it says, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? You know what Paul is doing here? I'm probably going to make some of you about to throw up because that's how I start to feel when I say this. Think of this. Jesus and the disciples, they're walking along the road. He's taught crowds. There's been healings. And at one point, the disciples are over here and he sneaks over here and finds a prostitute behind a bush and they do their thing. If that doesn't make you want to throw up as a believer in Christ, I don't know what would. Jesus and a prostitute, okay? Paul is trying to paint that kind of picture. You do not unite Jesus and a prostitute like that in the same way because God has a high view of your body and your sexuality. You don't get to do whatever you want to do. Your body is Jesus. He says, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them to a prostitute? He says, never. And then this, do you not know, and this is key, Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with them in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Our world and our culture and our society, just like back in Paul's day, is trying to teach us that whatever we do sexually is separate from the soul work God's doing over here. And they're not, they're intertwined and there is no separation. You can Google and look up all kinds of articles about how to you know, enjoy yourself sexually but not get connected emotionally. And all these things you can look up, a couple of things, how not to get emotional when you're passionate, how to biohack your brain so you can have sex and not get attached. But God says, our bodies are gloriously made and united to our souls. There is no separation. It's emotional, it's spiritual, and a lot of other things. And our culture says sex is just a body thing. It doesn't matter. If you noticed what Paul does in verse 16 is he quotes Genesis chapter 2. And let me just tell you what it says. Genesis 2.26 talking about the guardrails God created for marriage from the beginning. Paul quotes it because it matters in his day, and I believe it matters today. It says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Paul lays out, going back to the beginning, how marriage is created to exist. He says a man leaves, gets out of the covering of the parents, and is united, just like like Paul talks about, united to his wife, and they become one. Jesus, in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, does the same thing with more emphasis. In Matthew 19, a group comes to Jesus, and they talk about, can we just get divorced for any and every reason? I mean, what's the big deal? Low view of marriage, low view of their own selves, uh, low view of women also. And, and Jesus says, no, 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 that is not the way it's meant to be. But let me read to you specifically, and he's going to quote Genesis chapter 2. Haven't you read, Jesus says, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Then Jesus says, so they are no longer two, but one. And then this. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. 
And I would challenge you to understand the last part of what Jesus is saying there is our culture will try to define it in all kinds of other ways. Our culture will try to say this is okay or is permissible or whatever else. But Jesus says God's design in the bounds of of, of romance and sexuality is this man and woman being united and they're one. Let not mankind twist what God intended in marriage. The picture again is a powerful unity that's about far more than a physical act. It's about physical, but it's also spiritual. It's also romantic. It's also emotional, and it's also mental. For those of us that have been in marriage for a certain length of time, and you genuinely have the type of love we're called to have in marriage, we understand that that sexual act is far more than a simple activity. And it has everything to do with that kind of union. This is why for young people, we talk about sex before marriage and getting into relationships romantically that you begin to tie yourself to these other things and then you break up and try to get married and it becomes this struggle sometimes. It's, 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 you look at Facebook and people rekindling romances from high school or whatever else and meeting up because they're in the same vicinity or whatever and this disaster that looms because we tied our hearts all over the place and then we jumped into a committed relationship. These are the things that happen in our world on top of misunderstanding our feelings and our sexuality. The picture is powerful. And we can't separate sex and sexuality bodily, but we try to. And that's, by the way, what sin does. Tries to make an excuse for why this works outside of the way God designed it. I mentioned already how pornography does that. How our souls, you know, we feel this pull because we, we, we don't feel like we're this person in our body, so we have to change our gender or, or our commitment in marriage. And, and you know, as people say, well, man, I got I to gotta know that we're compatible. They're like, look, you, you have the right plumbing and so do, so do they. they. They're compatible. Okay, it works. There's all kinds of things that, that, that remind us or lead us to God's care for our sexuality. And so, and I'm trying to land the plane here. When you talk theology, and yes, I talked about Genesis chapter 2, and it's in 1 also. Next week, we're going to talk some more about uh, Genesis 1, in in his image were created, and male and female. Um, But one of the things you need to understand about creation is that it gives us this picture of like opposites. And it is part of our theology. Maybe you've never heard this before. But in like opposites, you see man and woman, uh, woman like but opposite. You, you, You see heaven and earth in creation like but opposite. You see land and sea within creation like but opposite. This amazing creative picture of how God put these pieces together. And like I said, the idea of man and woman is part of that that picture of like but opposite. And as I said, sex in, in, in romantic relationship the right way is obviously about more than sex. Yes, it's a glorious union. Yes, it's a place of, of joy. But also it's important to understand Ephesians chapter 5 says that it's a picture of Christ as the groom, and Revelation talks about this, and the church as the bride, and a picture of that union, that coming together. It's, it's, it's also a work that sanctifies. I've said before, like I'm 24 years married this month on this stage a long time ago, 24 years having been married to my best friend. But you know what? I will admit over 24 years, she has made me a better person. Sometimes when I do vows, I talk about how God puts us in such close proximity to one another that it rubs off some of those rough edges. 
and smooths us out to be the people we're called to be with better self-control, with the idea of living for another and not simply ourselves. And then you bring kids in the mix and it gets exponentially worse that way. And by worse, I mean better. (laughs) It's a work that does sanctify, develops holiness through sacrifice and repentance and humility and self-denial. And we're gonna talk about self-denial next week. For procreation, how God intended children to come into the world, and while it's not always that way, the intent. In Jesus' day, people were looking to get out for all kinds of reasons and culturally had a very low view of females. And if a woman was divorced in Jesus' day, it was really, 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 really rough to survive because she had that label forever. You go, well, where, where are you going with this? Well, it's important to remember, and this is what Jesus says, or sorry, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Paul says, there's sins, you steal or you gossip and slander, and none of those things are good, but there's something outside of those. But when you sin sexually, there's something in this union, there's something about the body and soul united in it. You've got to be careful and understand that. And then he says this, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? I've said this before, but here's what you need to know. When Paul wrote that, he was putting his life on the line. Paul was always putting his life on the line. But when he said, your body is the temple, that's a big deal. Because back in Jesus' day, back in Paul's day, the Jews went to the temple because that's where God was supposed to be. And Paul says, God is not there. The veil was torn. We all have access. The spirit now lives inside of us. You are the temple of God. God moved in. If you don't have any other value to yourself based on other things, remember you are God's. He lives inside of you. And that's what Paul is trying to say. There's all this stuff you make excuses for. Don't do it. You are God's temple. You belong to God. Do not unite yourself to another except within the confines of marriage that God designed to be beautiful and wonderful. If you're bruised, broken, if you've got some of the issues, like I said, from, from my growing up time, if, if you're in here today and, and there are some that maybe you feel like you're fuming because what I just talked about is the opposite of where you're coming from or what you believe, I, I, I'm okay with that. I get it. And I know today it's one of those messages that feels uncomfortable and part two's next week, so feel free to come on back and you know, we'll punish you some more. Um, but, but really, honestly, my hope is that, that you can hear what we believe is God's design for romance and sexuality because he has created something amazing, but there are certain parameters he's created for it intentionally. And I'm gonna pray for you in a second. Next week, we're gonna talk about a couple of key questions in this conversation. One is, where do our bodies come from? And some of us go, I already know, whatever. The second question is, how can I be happy? Because our culture is asking those questions. Where did I come from? And how can I be happy? And we're going to dive in in part two and then we'll continue on the series off the rails. But these are big conversations and I want to pray and then I'm going to dismiss here in just a moment. God, they're deep waters and they're uncomfortable. But but Lord, I pray we would never skip out because we're uncomfortable. I pray we would dive in. And I pray there, there are some in the room today, and I understand, that, that have a different background or a different belief about this conversation. And, and I just pray that, that your Holy Spirit would continue to open every heart that we're on this journey. 
And that God, part of this journey for those of us in Christ is, is learning something that maybe is new and different and yet navigating the confrontation with the old that we used to believe or we used to be part. God, I just pray for you to continue to move, continue to compel. I believe your word is alive and does something amazing beyond the words I try to say. But I also pray, just like in my past, carrying some of the wounds, some of the things I remember, some of the stuff I feel embarrassed of. God, thank you that you are a healer that you are a redeemer, that you are a restorer and that you give good things. But God, I pray for that healing to take place in certain hearts where there's trauma, where there's a depth of injury. Got people online even now that are sitting in their living rooms wondering, processing this. Some of us sitting in this room now processing this. I pray, Father, for a healthy understanding of our sexuality because it does matter and it is interwoven with our soul, our spirit with our mental and emotional health. God, help us understand it according to your design. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. To keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or check us out at our website, grove.church.